Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome back to the OSINT Bunker podcast. Uh, this week you've got myself and Technical. And yes, I have made some, let's say, extreme uh, <laughs> provisions to be on this tonight. Um, I am calling in from a slightly remote location. So you have me, but excuse any weird audio issues on my end. Yeah, um, we've lost uh, Jordan and Tom this evening. They've both unfortunately had to pull out uh, for a variety of reasons. So you've just got the two of us uh, for this week's episode. Um, of course, to, to talk about a ridiculous amount of things. Yeah, uh, this week we're going to be looking at the the start of uh, the UK carrier strike groups, uh, combat operations uh, over Syria and Iraq as part of Op Shader. Um, we're also going to look uh, a little bit at what's been going on in the Baltic Sea um, with the recent sort of tensions between Russia and NATO there and then to finish off um, a topic that we've been teasing quite a bit on Twitter for the last couple of weeks um, our thoughts and uh, opinions on on the situation in Afghanistan yeah so why don't we start um, on CSG 21 um, it's been pretty much confirmed at this point that the airstrikes were at least ongoing and um, they haven't released much information on the success or failures potentially thereof, but no matter what, it looks like the group has gotten a good amount of experience um, in operating F-35s from both the U.S. and from the U.K. in, um, in, in fairly austere conditions, very long-range, um, tanker-supported uh, operations. And that, that's, a, that's a big thing that we've seen is that... Um, is that prevalence of using um, the tanker based out of Cyprus um, to perform these long range attacks. Though the F-35s as well do have a fairly good combat operating range, so it would certainly put less strain on any sort of tanker resources. Yeah, and we've uh, we've obviously, as, as you say, we've seen um, some nice photo shoots uh, coming from the official MOD uh, photographers, um, particularly showing at one point US and British F-35s flying off the wingtips of, uh, of a Voyager tanker over Syria. Um, I also believe that they've uh, just recently conducted some sort of uh, flyover or joint exercise with the Israeli F-35s. Um, so that's the first time that you've seen three different nations f-35s flying in a combat area together yeah um and as you say that there's not been an awful lot of statement from the ministry of defense yet as to uh exact details of the strikes uh you know how many targets have been hit what targets specifically have been hit um, but we do know that the jets have been carrying out a lot of strikes um possibly uh, more strikes in the last few days than the typhoons that are based in Akrotiri. Um Yes, just due to the quantity of fighters on both US and uh, RF based on the carrier. That's yeah. that's definitely, I mean, it's certainly a statement of, you know, now the UK um, can project power far away um, and even not utilizing their land-based resources and at the same time, you know, operate with US forces as well. Yeah, um, and obviously HMS Queen Elizabeth also made a port visit a couple of days ago to Cyprus itself, um, and there's been some pretty awesome photos of the jets lined up on the flight deck uh, while she's been alongside there, uh, you know, collecting uh, supplies and stuff. Yes, and, and that, that much-needed shore rest for all the crew all over the Mediterranean has certainly been a uh, a nice perk to this operation so far yeah it's um it's worth noting as well that um russia has obviously been very keenly monitoring um the carrier strike group's progress in the mediterranean particularly since it entered the eastern mediterranean towards cyprus and syria um we obviously had a report uh, about a week ago now that several russian bombers and a couple of mig-31 fast jets had been moved to a base in Syria specifically to monitor uh, the UK carrier strike group. Now, whether that's actually the purpose of those aircraft being there or whether that's just a, a, a rotational deployment that the Russians have been making, 
Um, we don't. Um, it was it was made fairly clearly that they were there specifically in response um, to the presence of CSG twenty one. Um, more specifically, the fact that they were armed with anti ship missiles, um, both the uh, MiG thirty ones and the um, the backfires. So that was certainly a message more to um, to the UK that no matter you know even if even if they are back and operating carriers, the Russians are sort of prepared to counter that. That was certainly the message itself. Yeah. But I think it's interesting that unlike with sort of previous UK warship deployments to the area for Opshader, um, there hasn't been an awful lot of sort of surface. The complex situation happening in the uh, Black Sea right now, we are seeing increased Russian activity as a response to the increased NATO and sort of US-aligned activity. I'll start off just by saying, um, I know we've sort of been, we've had a couple of cases where we have reported falsely based on um, AIS, faked AIS data, which we are certainly definitely sorry about. Um, It's been something that has definitely rattled us as well. Um, There's certainly at least an established um, understanding now that there is either a person or potentially a governmental force um, maliciously faking AIS ship tracking data um, somewhere near Crimea. They've been targeting both US, um, UK, and of course, um, uh, Russian. Well, the the interesting thing is they've also been faking um, Russian ship positions as well. so we, we saw a Russian Coast Guard ship make a transit of the area that it, it hadn't. So there's some, it might be a throw off to people like us sort of investigating it, but we aren't entirely sure yet um, the specific conditions around that. Yeah, and um, it's obviously been affecting not just military vessels as well. There has been a number of civilian vessels tracked, uh, making course, course alterations that just don't make an awful lot of sense um it is an ongoing situation it is something that we are monitoring um but like you say it it's obviously something that has hit the mainstream media albeit um the mainstream media has been reporting the ship tracking information as fact rather than uh reporting on the fact that actually a lot of this tracking information has been falsified um and it does pose our need for well, partially our need for up-to-the-date information um, is a big one um, so we're prepared to sort of go with stories um, based on what we think are reliable sources earlier than other publications are yeah. so with this we normally trust AIS and we trust you know tracking sources and this time um, I guess we can't anymore, especially in that region. Yeah, and I think obviously we've seen, uh, particularly in the UK media in the last sort of 10 days, um, there was a lot of fuss made about uh, the Royal Navy destroyer that was in the area um, supposedly being fired upon by the Russians. Um, Obviously that was not actually the case. Again, that was a case of the the AIS data being uh, messed with make uh, HMS Defender appear a lot closer uh, to the Russian units than it really was Um, and there was a great deal of sort of debate about that in the media and and a lot of uh, conspiracy theories floating around which obviously is concerning and it's something that we are seeing a lot more of um, at the moment. Um, It does make things difficult and it you know would be good to know who's behind these uh, AIS tracking uh, <sighs> shenanigans. Yeah, shenanigans. Um, at the very least, it, well, that it's, helps it, it's, to give an it, idea of what the the intentions are behind it. Yeah, I mean, it's shenanigans if it's a single person doing it. It's a purposeful interference um, if if some sort of state level entity is doing it. Yeah. Yeah. 
And that's that's certainly something that I, I assume we're trying to watch. Though at the same time, right after um, HMS Defender was uh, faked going um, near the Crimean Peninsula, it actually did make a passing um, and was definitely harassed by both um, Russian Coast Guard forces and Russian um, fast attack jets. So that's something additionally we we had to um, we had to watch and. I will say some of the statements from MOD people um, didn't exactly align with what the Russians had said and what the Russians further released in video as and at least what BBC, what a BBC reporter on the ship um, had elaborated on as it was sort of happening. So it was definitely a bit of an incident that I don't think we'd like to see again. It would be nice if the MOD was clear about Russian aggression, but... Um, there definitely is at least the need for both sides to present a narrative. Um, the Russians do want to present a narrative that they're successfully repelling incursions into their territory and, you know, the evil NATO forces are trying to hurt them all. But at the same time, you're seeing um, the MOD make another statement as in, you know, the Russians didn't harass us. There was an exercise going on nearby and I guess we heard it. Um yeah. So it, it's countering narratives and it's it's both sides trying to put up their own narratives. And of course, the truth was somewhere in between that. But usually we expect at least Western um, forces to be not more honest per se, but clearer on events like that. Yeah, and I, I, th I think you're right. I think the Ministry of Defense perhaps was not as clear as it could have been. Um, and as a result, sort of, the media here in the UK really kind of went a little bit round in a circle and then sort of had to kind of come up with its own explanation to a certain extent as to what had been going on. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we have sort of a hierarchy of, you know, at least in the Austin community of rumours, then reporters, and then government sources. And when rumours say one thing, Reporters say another thing, and government sources then say a third completely different thing that's also not true. It, it throws us through a loop, and it also throws most major news agencies through a loop as well. So that's that's certainly something we, we attempt to, not counter per se, but sort through. Yeah. And I, th I think, again, we, we, we've sort of touched on this in previous episodes as well, because obviously this, is, this isn't just an issue between the UK and Russia or the US and Russia. Um, this has sort of been a whole NATO-wide thing. Um, obviously, in recent days, it's been UK, US, Dutch warships in particular that have been sort of in the area and, and been affected by these, you know, these AIS changes. Um, but it's interesting, once again, that NATO, the, the, the command structure of NATO, for the most part, has been relatively silent on, you know, sort of their response to what's going on. Um, I mean, I know we've just had, uh, so the chairman of the NATO military committee uh, has changed uh, in the last week. So uh, the UK's air chief marshal, uh, Sir Stuart Peach, has stepped down after three years in the role. Um, he's retired from service now after an absolutely insanely long career. He's been in the RAF since 1974. Um, so hats off to him for that. But even... You know, the NATO Secretary General um, has not had very much to say. Um, neither of uh, most of NATO's social media channels, um, and they're normally fairly vocal on situations. But I think we've we, we've definitely noticed a sort of a a quietening almost from NATO sort of uh, politicians in in the last few months. And once again, you know, there's not an awful lot being said here about the situation with Russia. Um, and that may also have to do with the upcoming exercise Seabreeze, um, which is primarily US and NATO led, um, but does include a number of other countries um, from pretty much all over the world, mostly, uh, but especially considering um, the countries coming from the Middle East, like Egypt and Morocco, um, contributing both ships and um, material to this. And of course, it's going on in the Black Sea. It certainly is angering the Russians a lot. Yeah. Um, we saw another incident where they faked 
um, the present the presence of um, the uh, USS Theodore Roosevelt, not carrier. There's a there's a destroyer with the same name. Sorry, the USS Roosevelt. Yeah, it's a destroyer with the same name as the carrier. It gets people confused. Um, but we all thought it was the USS Ross, which was an Arleigh Burke class uh, destroyer in the region. Um, neither were present. It was all AIS faking. Um, and it's certainly something that, again, has us concerned about the, not the quality of AIS data, but the penchant for certain actors to fake that data, which, you know, has us concerned on some levels. Mm. And and if this sort of topic of the AIS data, particularly around the Black Sea area, is uh, of interest to you, um, I'd really recommend giving uh, Evergreen Intel a follow on Twitter. Um, that account has sort of been covering uh, what's been going on in a great deal of detail, particularly the last few days, um, sort of pooling information from a variety of sources to point out where there are errors and, and, and where there's actually been genuine sort of encounters, if you like, um, Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'll I'll link that account down below as well. But yeah, it's it's certainly something that I guess we haven't precisely been... Data faking isn't sort of something that surprises us as much as it used to um, as mainstream, you know, or correction, as different powers seek to create a narrative using um, what is typically open source data that is harder to fake um and going after not military intelligence because they would be able to sort through that easily but um people like us who start you know news stories and to publicize stuff like this yeah and i, I think you know it's kind of a natural progression what we've seen we, we, we've seen a lot of it in the last sort of 18 months particularly in aviation um you know, we've we've seen spoofing of various kinds. So we've seen, for example, U.S. Uh, military assets appearing to enter, for example, North Korean airspace or pass particularly close uh, to Chinese airspace at various points, when in reality they they've been nowhere near. Um, and now we're obviously seeing it with much larger, uh, obviously, naval assets. Um, which so yeah. Um, so that kind of reflects on what's going on with NATO and Russia at the minute. And and, and while we're still on the topic of NATO, um, we'll sort of move now on to discussing Afghanistan, I think. Because um, I think it's fair to say this is, this is a topic that you and I have been very, very vocal about on Twitter for the last few weeks. Um, well, yeah, of course we've been vocal about it. We're, we're seeing, you know, the collapse. We're we're seeing an event that we, we haven't really seen since... The, the fall of Vietnam, except this time the, the Afghan government can't even hold on as much as as much as the, the South Vietnamese government could. Yeah. And it's um, I mean, we, we, we're not the only ones being vocal about it. Um, this week, you've had former head of the British Army, Lord Dannett, um, has been very vocal about it. There's been a number of other sort of senior political and, and military figures from various points in the history of the war in Afghanistan who have sort of been saying yeah this is this is a mistake um we we've touched on before our, our, our sort of our thoughts on on the US plans to withdraw um and it it's really kind of coming to a head at this point we're now early July um Germany has completely withdrawn um who else Poland was it Yes, a bunch of um, the issue is a lot of forces aren't publicizing their withdrawals um, for both PR reasons and for safety reasons um, for their respective installations. Um, just because again, you're dealing with an asymmetric opponent, or the Taliban is becoming less and less of an asymmetric opponent, and they're putting together, you know, concerted actual um, offensives in various regions. But for for a lot of places, they're still an asymmetric threat. Um, and that just limits the ability of these places to fully publicize. Yeah, and um, I think that sort of the big news story that sort of jumped out at me this week was that the US has completely withdrawn now from Bagram Air Base, 
Um, for those of you not familiar with uh, Afghanistan, Bagram is uh, about an hour's travel north of Kabul um, and to all intents and purposes was one of the biggest uh, US bases in Afghanistan for the sort of 20 years almost that they've been. I mean, it, it was the entry point for the US into into Afghanistan. It was the, you know, logistical hub, the transport hub, basically everything operated out of there. Yeah. That, so, that and Kandahar. Yeah. The, the withdrawal from there um, has been sort of... It's not been publicised as widely, perhaps, um, but it is a it is a major sort of waypoint on the route out for the US. Uh, yes, there were um, there was a local reporter um, who reported that the base that the rest of the troops have left the base facility, um, and that we saw at least locals looting whatever had been left. I'm assuming it's just going to be probably scrap material. Um, they might find some stuff, but but nothing, probably nothing of use. Yeah, and I, was, I spoke with a, uh, a U.S. vet earlier this week, and I think it's fair to say that his just shock, um, really, at Bagram being abandoned by the U.S. Um, I think he he pretty much said to me that when he was there, the f- the feeling of, about the base was that it was going to be a permanent installation that it was going to be there you know for a very 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 long time to come and i think he's rightly perhaps shocked that you know there it is the us are gone you know and and as you say uh, civilians have gone in there and they've sort of been taking whatever scraps they can get their hands on uh which is which is of note because um in there it means the us didn't bother to transfer it over to the afghans they have ripped down Bagram and made it so that it is, you know, no longer militarily usable at this point. It is, you know, and I think that reflects sort of the confidence the U.S. has um, in force in the Afghan government at the moment. Um, and, and what we've seen um, primarily, uh, it just it's 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 what we expect at this point. Um the US I think understands they understand the reality of the situation without really understanding long term ramifications, which I think is a big thing, at least for right now. Yeah. And uh, you know, sort of again this something that has been quite shocking to see. Um and again I'm I'm gonna sort of refer you all again to a, another really good Twitter account to follow. Um Natsec Jeff um yes he's 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 absolutely a a, just an incredible source of information um in the open sources intelligence community um he has pretty much now for the last three or four weeks at least um been posting near enough non-stop uh images videos and the like from afghanistan um he is an amazing source and local to the region um which is definitely um definitely makes him a top level source yeah and and we've been seeing a lot from him um of you know equipment and weapons being captured by uh not only the the, the local civilians but also by the taliban um i think you know just in the last couple of days i've seen probably four or five hundred firearms um that have been captured by the taliban um goodness knows how many humvees as well um, i i think we can say at now by now the count is in the hundreds of vehicles that have been seized yeah um, um a lot of that i think we can say the afghan uh, national defense forces um some of it i would imagine is probably equipment that has just been left by the americans um there has been a significant number of for example m16 uh weapons uh, that are obviously american made um as i mentioned the humvees have been quite prominent uh pickups for the uh the taliban in in, in the last few weeks and yeah and a lot of this the vehicles um haven't been taken primarily because um uh that they they're not function they're not functional um and the afghan army didn't have the wherewithal to um destroy them or sabotage them enough um to make them unusable 
So that's sort of something we've seen. The, I mean, the upkeep, we basically, the U.S. gave them a bunch of vehicles or left them a bunch of vehicles and didn't really give them the spare parts or the training or a, a lot of the resources to keep the vehicles maintained in really any good way. So a lot of, um, a lot of them have been sort of scavenged. Um, so these may be parts vehicles, but at, at the same time, I'm, I'm assuming some of them are running and the, the Taliban generally has the ability to um, get things running again in, in their, in their own way. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're probably going to see an uptick in suicide attacks um, utilizing these vehicles, which is very dangerous because um, they are they are the same vehicles that the Taliban or sorry that the Afghans have been using. So it just makes it harder to pick them out and you know less identifiable. Yeah. Um, there, there was a. Oh, I'm just looking back through my uh, my own notes. There was a, a an incident back on the 17th of June. Um, again, you know, Nat, Natsak Jeff uh, reported on this, um, where the Taliban seized some 300 firearms and 120 US-built vehicles on a single base. Um, and it's it's this this has been pretty much the same story all over Afghanistan for the last few weeks. Um, and I, I can't help but think that the US the US commanders who are still out there and, and those at CENTCOM um, in the Middle East are sort of watching this unfold and thinking, oh gosh, you know, we've, we've you know, something needs to well, be at, done. Well, at the moment... Political backing for it. At the moment, it does seem like the Taliban understand that as long as they aren't attacking U.S. forces in the region, the U.S. forces will leave them alone, which has been part of the peace deal. Again, the peace deal between the Taliban and the U.S., it was negotiated between the Taliban and the U.S. There was The, the Afghans were not a party to that peace deal, um, or, or were not a full party to that peace deal. So what we're seeing is that those um, local Afghan forces are still being attacked and typically conducting a fighting withdrawal or just a withdrawal whenever the Taliban show up. Mm. Um, but the Taliban aren't attacking U.S. forces, and the U.S. forces really aren't going after the Taliban right now. Yeah. Um, and I, I think we'll, uh, for those of you watching this on uh, on YouTube, uh, we'll, we'll probably put a, a photo um, of the sort of the, well... A map, rather, um, of the current sort of disposition of, of Taliban forces and government forces in in Afghanistan as of a few days ago. Um, I've got a map to hand, which we'll use for that. But um, it's it's a desperate situation, and, and it's it's you know very very sad, really. Um, just today, for example, the Taliban have overrun uh, an Afghan defence forces border outpost on the Pakistani border. Um, capturing six Afghan troops and causing near enough 30 others to flee into Pakistan where they've then been arrested by the Pakistani army for obviously uh, yeah. crossing the border. And that's, and that's just one of the three or four instances of them overrunning positions today. Yeah. Um, we've also seen a couple of cases where local militias who were um, controlling an area and backing you know, the, Afghan, um, the Afghan national forces... Um, switch sides over to the Taliban and then welcome them in, um, which is yeah. another thing we've seen. We've seen, I would say, uh, near a dozen at this point of of those forces who have um, who have done that and who have uh, not defected over per se, but well, defected I think actually is the perfect term to it uh, to use there. Yeah, there's there's been a lot of surrendering, um, and. You know, to, to to an outsider, it that that would seem a you know very a very strange thing. But what you've got to remember is that the war in Afghanistan is a great deal more than the twenty years that you know NATO forces have been there. Afghanistan's been fighting if effectively a civil war for the better part of what 40 50 years i now? think i think we're over 50 now i um, think since 1967 you could basically consider afghanistan being in a state state of civil conflict yeah 
and to a certain extent having NATO forces there for the last 20 years has been a, a source of help to the Afghan people. Um, I think what we're seeing now is, is now that the Afghan people are realising that NATO is pulling out and that they're no longer going to have that support from NATO and they're kind of looking at their own national defence forces and thinking well you know these guys are surrendering or you know switching sides or you know just losing the battle effectively um, against the Taliban we've seen so many towns and villages Uh, again you know Natsak Jeff is is the best person to follow for this because the, the amount of towns and villages he's you know sort of shown us photos from of people literally just switching sides or the civil population effectively getting hold of whatever weapons they can to prepare for the fight they know is coming um, yeah we have seen a lot of um local militias being raised in places where they think the army can't protect them mm. um and the usefulness of those militias will you know will most likely end up seeing them being tested over the next couple of months. Um, But at this point, any area where the Afghan National Army held marginal or even, not even to say partial, but partial, but basically anywhere that wasn't like a stronghold of the Afghan army and the Afghan national forces has, you know, it is, it is under immediate threat from Taliban occupation. Mm. And, uh, you know, we've already alluded to this earlier in this episode, but NATO has been nigh on silent about this. And, you know, as as I said, there there have been a number of voices uh, in the UK and and elsewhere saying, you know, we cannot be doing this. We cannot be sort of deserting the Afghans um, at this stage because, you know, the the war is far from over. Um, Yeah. Oh, and I am I am certainly sure that um that that they will be making large statements whenever the f whenever the taliban take power and start committing you know massive crimes against humanity Mm. i'm i'm sure of that yeah um and you know it's all political at the end of the day the, the the whole withdrawal at this point um you know we we yeah okay NATO forces have been in Afghanistan now for 20 years and realistically do they have an awful lot to show for it I'd I'd, I'd say no probably Um, I I think Lord Dannett former head of the British Army sort of really hit the nail on the head when he said we've lost the war in Afghanistan Um, and as as I think it was Jordan mentioned a couple of episodes back um, at the end of the day, the sort of a lot of the reason for the U.S. withdrawal at this point is that Biden doesn't want to be the president in charge when the 20th anniversary of 9/11 comes around in in a couple of months' time. Um, he he doesn't want to have to say say we're still here. Yeah. Um, and again, this this was not a. This is different than Vietnam. This is this is this is so much of a different situation on the ground and you know we had a small maintenance force who was keeping things mostly in check and at this point we're seeing you know this is this is a loss that we decided to take this this was not a forced loss this was not you know this 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 was a capitulation on 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 our on our end of things and it it seems to me a, a very strange decision to take a loss here because ultimately what the US is after is a sort of stabilised Middle East and I think it's fair to say that with the way that the Taliban are still so prevalent um, and and, and so widespread in Afghanistan and and indeed the fact that they are sort of making their presence felt across the borders in in other countries again now the the timing is is not great it you know um i have a very nasty feeling that we are potentially going to see things fall apart very 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 quickly 
uh, in the next couple. Oh, I, we're 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 already we are already in the stage of watching things fall apart very quickly. Yeah, I mean, it, we're already seeing the spiral of decline, and and you know, for the for what it's worth, the U.S. still has troops there. The U.K. still has troops there. Um, there are a couple of other sort of NATO and allied countries who are still there if, at the moment. If Bagram is has been emptied and the reports are true, I would say the U.S. complete pullout is most likely a month away at this yeah. point. If if Bagram is gone, um, they have. That's a very large indication that they're very close. Yeah, they have indicated they intend to keep somewhere in the region of six hundred and fifty troops in the country. Um, mainly for protecting sort of the embassy and, and diplomatic activities in Kabul. Um, I have the feeling like th- those troops will not be remaining, nor will the US embassy be remaining yeah. more than a few months in the country. I think long term, we are going to see the situation in Afghanistan really spiral out of control, even more so than it already has done. Um, and I would say that with the way the Taliban is arming itself, the fact that it now has access to Humvees, the fact that it's capturing all of these firearms and RPGs and and all sorts of weaponry that are being left behind by both the Americans and and, and more so the the Afghan National Defense Forces. They're arming, they are resupplying, and they are preparing for a prolonged, or not even a prolonged, but a furious offensive. Yeah. and and again, they are they are gaining the supplies and the resources to be able to do that. I think it's entirely likely that we will see the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban, um, probably within the next two years. If you know, if it doesn't happen sooner than that, um, it, honestly, at this point, it depends how much the cities hold out. Yeah, it really depends how long Kabul holds out. And to all intents and purposes, I I can see. NATO potentially a few years from now sort of having to turn around and say you know what maybe we need to go back in um, because you know ultimately if Afghanistan does fall to the Taliban um, that's going to have repercussions not just in the Middle East it's going to have re- repercussions worldwide um, at the very least um, we could see a resurgence in Taliban um, sort of focus terrorism um i know for sort of the last 12 months we've kind of seen a a decrease in in sort of terrorist attacks in the west in general um i don't think that's going to last very long particularly with the taliban the way it is particularly with um al-qaeda and al-shabaab sort of making their presence felt in their respective theaters again i'm Uh, i'm i'm absolutely sure there will be infighting um at this point, the, the future of Afghanistan is weird. I'm not sure how Pakistan will play ball with it. I'm not sure how India will play ball with it. Um, but I feel like the conflict will become more of a um, Indian subcontinent issue, um, yeah. where where you see more local players involved. Um, because I'm not sure after after the Af- after the Taliban solidly recapture Afghanistan, I'm not sure how you know how willing to play ball they will be with the Pakistanis. I'm, I'm just, I'm not sure. Yeah. And I think if the Taliban do succeed, you know, in taking Afghanistan, we could potentially be looking at a, I'd, I'd go so far as to say a second Somalia almost. Um, we, we were talking briefly about this earlier. Um, I've been sort of re-watching some favourite movies of mine and one of those is Black Hawk Down. Um, and obviously, as many of you will no doubt be familiar with the story of Black Hawk Down, it's sort of it's set in Somalia um, during the fighting that was going on there and the U.S. intervention with the U.N. Um, we could be looking at, at Afghanistan sort of ending up a little bit like Somalia, where cities are literally run by the Taliban um, and a huge humanitarian crisis that that will inevitably come with that. Yeah, we'll we'll most likely see something along the lines of a longer-term failed state um, with militias controlling a lot of areas, especially in the north, um, where um, 
militia leaders will end up being backed by different parties and they'll be jumping back and forth across the border. Um, in the East, you'll probably see um, ISIS-K, um, you know, making a resurgence as they sort of, you know, take advantage of less focus on them to reestablish some territory. Um, and then, of course, you'll see local militias whose alliances, again, are very flexible um, jump back and forth between various parties and sometimes fight for themselves. It'll look, no matter what ends up happening, it's going to be a loss for the Afghan people. Yeah. You know, it, we're going to be, we're going to be screaming about, Oh, this atrocity, you know, that the Taliban committed a year from now. And, you know, this atrocity and then look how they're abusing the Afghan people. Again, 20 years ago, we did not have this prevalent connection to the internet. And I promise you, over the next couple of years, the Afghan people will still have some access to the internet. Information will get out. And we'll see this these examples. And, and you know, it's going to be pictures. It's going to be videos. It's going to be horrifying things. I mean, people got information out of ISIS-controlled territory. And we could, we could definitely say ISIS is a lot more harsh, somewhat more harsh than, you know, the Taliban. It's a mess. Yeah, it, yeah. Is. it really is. And like you know, like, like I said, I, I think a few years from now, NATO is going to have to take a very, very long, hard look at itself and say, "Well, okay, maybe we shouldn't have left." As much as much as I understand that a lot of NATO nations are very much of the opinion that, yeah, we've been there twenty years, you know, we've done our bit, we need to move on now, and a lot of NATO no. nations have suffered losses, and you know, some of those losses were perhaps unnecessary but I think the issue we're seeing here is that if anything the Afghan people need NATO's presence there now more than ever before and this is the time that NATO is choosing to pull out this is you know that like I keep saying and and you you will if you follow me on Twitter you will see me tweet about it a lot um the timing is just so poor for this um yes okay there is a chance that if we stay in afghanistan that we could still be in afghanistan in you know another 20 years time but ultimately can nato or, or, or any of the other nations involved really turn around and say yeah we're, we're, we're defenders of world peace we're defenders of you know those who can't stand up for themselves and of the rules-based order um on which sort of the UN is based when we're turning around at this point and sort of leaving the Afghans to fight for their survival effectively um, you know the, the Taliban looks set to achieve something that ISIS has been trying to achieve for so long ISIS set out obviously with the idea of creating a state um, the Taliban look likely to just capture Afghanistan and, and, and achieve that aim themselves um, you know at the minute it's fair to say that the Taliban and, and ISIS don't really like each other they are sort of having a little bit of a skirmish with each other um, on their closest borders there <sighs> how long that lasts whether they're able to sort of potentially join forces in the future and then we find ourselves fighting not just ISIS in Syria and Iraq, but then once again fighting the Taliban in Afghanistan. Who knows? Um, it is a sad state of affairs. It's you know it shouldn't be the way it is, but yeah, there's there's a lack of political will at a critical point. Um, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, and and the the other thing is, if you compare this to something like the long term U.S. operations in, say, West Africa, similar number of troops, you know, same type of drone activity, and yeah, uh, again, it's it. A lot of this has to do with the amount of tension it's gotten in the public. Yeah, yeah, the, the... and that just that that doesn't exist for yeah. that, but when it exists for this, it's it's a whole lot worse. Yeah, I think it's fair to say the war in Afghanistan has been a hot potato for most of the nations in the West who have been involved in it. Whereas, for example, um, French involvement in Mali 
has only recently become a bit of a hot potato and that mainly because of the casualties that the French have now been suffering particularly the last couple of months they've they've had some pretty horrendous uh, they, they had a pretty bad year mm. um they they had a pretty bad year altogether in Mali yeah and the French have hinted that they are either going to withdraw from their efforts in Mali or at the very least they're going to severely restructure their operations there um, yeah I mean I, I can't remember the exact figure but I'm pretty sure they've got somewhere in the region of just over 5,000 troops deployed to Mali um, so you'd, you'd, you'd think you'd hear more about it but it's it's one of those operations that they've has, has not received as much public attention as the war in Afghanistan um, obviously for a variety of reasons but uh, yeah yeah certainly um something that we have to look at and evaluate and again we'll see we'll see what the french do yeah that's that's definitely the, the french will do whatever the french do they're certainly looking at revamping their military over the next few years um they've announced a very large exercise in the near future um so we'll we'll see what they intend to do but i think um, at this point we can move on to the um next imminent failed state that being lebanon um it all started with the currency crisis of the past few years um lebanese banks had been operating fairly irresponsibly um in their lending and that had resulted in a currency crisis um uh, the currency is not effectively worthless at this point but most people attempt to use dollars um Something like four and five uh, Lebanese are currently going through um, high levels of food insecurity. Um, the army last year had to switch to a vegetarian diet because they couldn't afford meat. Um, they're currently offer offering helicopter rides to people um, in order to get some additional funding. Yeah. Um, and at this point, you're seeing additionally a gas crisis. Um, and this was all, of course, um, made a lot worse by the pandemic and by the um, Beirut port explosion last year, which has significantly curtailed the amount of um, resources that can be brought into the country. Yeah. And, and and that Beirut port explosion has had a huge political effect as well, um, which I think has been understated really in, in, in a lot of Western media it very much saw the toppling of the government in Lebanon at that moment in time. Um, I think it's fair to say we in, in the weeks that followed, there was mass resignations. Um, some of them forced, some of them, you know, voluntary. Um, we've just seen this week as well, the UN has turned around and said that at this moment in time, somewhere in the region, I, th I think it was 70%, was it? I, I think it was you who retweeted it. Um, somewhere in the region of 70% of families in Lebanon do not have food um, or money to buy food even. Um, yeah, I, I, I believe I commented on that today. Um, that's, that's just one of the things, the gas crisis as well, electricity. Um, most people in Lebanon, including in the cities, are under six hours of electricity a day. The, the 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 electric companies are not able to provide you know more than 25 percent of you know the time with electricity so massive ongoing rolling blackouts and that's a that's a pretty quick way to get people angry is remove their quality of life make them food insecure um and we saw protests in the north of the country um we've seen mass tensions around this gas crisis um, where people are being limited to buying a very, very small amount of gas each day, um, which, you know, significantly impacts their ability to, you know, get around to get to work and, you know, make what little money they can. I mean, we've seen, you know, monthly incomes in Lebanon plunge to something like $90 and, 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 and prices are going up, you know, even more. Yeah. And it's, you know, it it's the situation has certainly not been made any better by Iran. Um, you know, we, we, again, something we've covered a lot before. Iran has been supplying funding and military equipment to groups like Hezbollah in Lebanon. Um, yeah, and and that's the that's the nine hundred pound bear in the room. 
the the fact that right now Hezbollah arguably has a more powerful military than the government does. Yeah, um, and that's not something that's likely to change anytime soon either. Um, I think it's fair to say that has uh, I, I, Lebanon is in a worse state right now than Afghanistan, but sort of not by a huge margin. Um, I feel things are bound to change soon, but not for the better. Yeah, yeah. That's that's I think something we can establish there. Yeah, and it's it's again Lebanon is a country where. NATO forces have been operating, um, albeit under the flag of the UN in sort of a peacekeeping role um, for a number of years. A, a buddy of mine um, in the British Army uh, was actually deployed out there not that long ago as part of the peacekeeping force. Um, and it, you know, the UN and NATO keep talking about being a force for good, but there is so much help that can be given to the Lebanese people that just isn't being given. Um, and that's not so much a reflection on the troops deployed there at all. It's more, uh, as, as I keep saying, it's about the political willingness back home um, from the countries that are involved in these operations. Um, Lebanon isn't a failed state yet. It can be saved. Um, but yeah. Um, if anything, Lebanon poses the highest chance for not necessarily a successful UN intervention, but the highest chance for a UN intervention. Yeah. Um, just because UN forces are already positioned there and, you know, it's, I, I hate to say this, but I, I, it's the same thing as we saw in the Balkans, is that there's definitely going to be more European and American attention paid to what is viewed as a more Western country yeah. versus a country in Africa or a country further east. Yeah. Um, and also, uh, usually when we see violence and instability break out in Lebanon, we do see rocket attacks aimed towards Israel and action aimed towards Israel, which will certainly raise um, the tensions of the region. Mm. And, and on the topic of Israel, it's worth noting that uh, since our last uh, episode, um, there has been a change of government in Israel. Um, President Netanyahu, sorry, Prime Minister Netanyahu is gone. Um, he has now been replaced um, how long has he been in power? He was prime minister. A few weeks now. Yeah, he's he's he, he was prime minister been for a few a weeks. Very, very long time, um, and I think it's fair to say that so far, the new administration has been fairly, um, fairly. Well, um, look, it's been more or less a continuation of the old administration. Um, yeah. With a better with ability, well, it's been a they've had a better ability to control domestic some domestic issues, mm. um, just through um, they've been a bit less inflammatory to both sides. Um, the, the thing is, the government in Israel has to um, balance both left wing extremists, right wing extremists. Um, they also have to balance, um, of course. The Palestinian issue, um, which which leads to, I, do, I don't know how to put this in in the best way. Um, a government, the government has to pick their position and be very willing to change it and attempt to take a middle of the road position without offending too many people. And so far, I will say their handling of um, the rescheduled flag march was fairly effective they kept um those uh very uh, conservative more right-wing parties from um from causing an issue and apart from some balloon launches from gaza they were able to more or less control um the backlash from uh palestinian parties which yeah. i will say that was their first big test and they they did pretty well 
yeah, and and, and I think you know, um, it's going to be interesting to say how uh, to see how the the new Israeli government deals with Lebanon. Um, obviously, yeah. you know, Gaza is is just a a, a problem, a, a thorn in the Israeli side, regardless of who's in power. But I think potentially Lebanon is a a, a location where the Israelis could come out now and after you know in a post netanyahu era um we could potentially see israelis leading the efforts to sort of help the lebanese people um obviously as you uh, you know as we, as we say um hezbollah is a major concern for the israelis and and rightly so um but we've we've seen a lot recently of the israelis going out of their way to help uh, other nations um, for example, we've had this obviously this uh, really tragic building collapse in Miami, uh, in the states, in the last week, um, and one of the first things to happen was the Israeli Defense Forces sent one of their specialist rescue teams out to help try and uh, find survivors. Yes, that was also um, partially because of the nature of the community there in Surfside. Um, Florida. It, it is a a very very heavily Jewish. Um, uh, a lot of um, people there have Israeli citizenship. Um, it, it is it was very much a disaster for the Israeli community in the U.S. Yeah. and for the Jewish community in the U.S. as well. Which which is why we saw the Israelis um, so quickly send um, those rescue forces there. Yeah, but let's let's be clear that it's it's not the first time the Israelis have have, have provided aid in this way. Um, there have been a number of sort of incidents with collapsed mines, for example, uh, landslides, and and the like, um, where yes, the and they that that a factor. yeah, that team um, has been very proactive in going out and um, or crush being sent out um, to to help with various places. Yeah, and it all comes down to this this soft power, doesn't it? Um, it's, I think it's fair to say under Netanyahu there wasn't a great deal of soft power. He was very firm and 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 very keen to use the military for the sort of offensive and defensive purposes that that any military is really there for. Um, I think we could very well see a, a, a rise in the use of the IDF as soft power, um, like I say, with Lebanon potentially, um, and you know how, how the West chooses to handle that remains to be seen. Um, as as I keep saying, NATO. Oh, um, I, I mean, absolutely. Yeah. Um, that is that is going to be a big part of it. Um, yeah, and I think. Um, do you think we're ready to move on to news? And uh, so. Uh, now I bring the news uh, for the last couple of weeks. Um, as we mentioned earlier uh, in today's episode, a uh, Afghanistan border outpost on, uh, on the border with Pakistan um, has fallen to the Taliban. Um, the Taliban forces who captured the location actually raised the Taliban flag uh, over the uh, installation um, after capturing six Afghan National Defence Forces personnel uh, and causing 30 others to flee into Pakistan. Um, China has increased the number of nuclear-armed ballistic missile submarines in service. Um, a two additional Type 094A Jin-class uh, submarines have entered service at some point in the last few days. Uh, this brings the total number of ballistic missile submarines in Chinese service to six vessels. Um, and there are plans with vessels under construction of the Type 096 Tang class, um, with at least one of those six uh, planned vessels uh, due to enter service before the end of 2021. Um, that's obviously quite a major de development for the Chinese. Um, at the moment, the US still has the, the largest number of ballistic missile submarines in, in active service, um, alongside Russia, who still have a quite a significant number um, this latest development from China now means that they have uh, two submarines more than both uh, Britain and France who operate four ballistic missile submarines each um, 
and obviously with everything that's going on in the South China Sea at the minute, that, that is a development that will be uh, very, very closely watched by US forces in the region um, and indeed by other nations uh, in the surroundings. Um, the German Luftwaffe and uh, the Royal Air Force have uh, carried out a joint NATO enhanced air policing mission uh, in Romania. Uh, both nations have deployed uh, Eurofighter Typhoon fast jets um, to uh, assist the Romanian Air Force's MiG-21 fishbed uh, fast jets in carrying out NATO air policing missions in the country. Um, this is just the latest uh, of several uh, announcements in recent weeks of, of additional cooperation between the United Kingdom and Germany um, and it's really, really good to see. Uh, the Royal Navy has announced that it has now begun evaluating designs for the future Type 83 destroyer. Um, some of you will remember a few months back when the Strategic Defence Review was uh, released, uh, the announcement was that the Type 45 destroyers would be replaced with the Type 83. Now, the Type 45 designation is just for a standard guided missile destroyer. Generally speaking, a Type 80 uh, hull identifier suggests a significantly larger ship. Um, prime example of that obviously being the Type 82 destroyer class which was HMS Bristol. Um, that was originally meant to have been a effectively a cruiser sized destroyer. Um, as I say plans are currently being looked at now for the potential designs for the Type 83 uh, destroyer. There have been rumours that the Type 26 hull could be the basis for this design um, but they are nothing more than rumours at this point um, and that development will be interesting to watch in the months to come. Um, and the New York Times has uh, released uh, a, 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 well, an article effectively um, in the last week um, relating to the situation in Afghanistan that we've already touched on um, in this episode. Um, in total, in June 2021, some 703 Afghan soldiers and 208 civilians have been killed um, in fighting with the Taliban. Um, this is the highest casualty rate for the soldiers of the Afghan uh, Defence Forces since uh, the New York Times started uh, monitoring these figures in September 2018. Um, and as we've already alluded to earlier in the episode, it kind of reflects the how rapidly this situation in Afghanistan is falling out of control. Um, you know, the civilian casualties, I, I don't know if that's the highest they've been since records began, uh, but it's certainly high. Um, and it, it should be a cause for concern for the West, um, but it is getting very, very little media coverage. China's Communist Party has this week celebrated its 100th anniversary um, with President Xi Jinping uh, warning the West of bloodshed if they try to oppress China. Um, we've already sort of covered the, the nuclear submarine aspect of China's uh, growth and in previous episodes we've talked a great deal about their military growth in general. Um, but China, particularly in the coming months, is going to be worth watching. Um, they've got a number of developments coming up, a number of new aircraft carriers, for example, um, that are either under construction or nearing completion. Um, and obviously with the UK carrier strike group planning to pass through the region in the not too distant future, um, it's going to be a, a no doubt a source of uh, a great deal of interest um, for everyone and no doubt a topic that we will be covering in a later episode. And earlier this week, a Belgian Air Force F-16 uh, had a bit of an accident uh, at an airbase in Belgium. Um, details have been somewhat limited so far as to what happened. Um, the Belgian Air Force commander has actually requested that any photos uh, currently online of the accident be taken down, uh, citing operational security or OPSEC reasoning. Um, we don't know the exact circumstances behind the crash. Um, the airframe, it's fair to say, from from what I've seen, appears to be in a very, very poor uh, state as a result of the accident. Um, 
but it will be interesting to see if there's sort of any public announcements in the in the next couple of weeks as to exactly what went wrong there. Um, and lastly, uh, the UK's National Cyber Security Centre, alongside the US uh, National Security Agency, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and the Cyber Security and Infrastructure Security Agency of the US, um, released a joint statement earlier this week uh, concerning the Russian Federation's uh, GRU intelligence agency's uh, cyber activity. Um, the statement effectively said that since mid-2019, uh, a Russian intelligence directorate, or the GRU, um, has been using a number of uh, anonymized, uh, yeah, anonymized brute force uh, actions to basically try and target government and private sector uh, IT infrastructure. Um, this has included things like Microsoft Office's 365 cloud services, um, and obviously famously, you know, that there have been a number of other incidents, oil pipelines in the States, for example, uh, a few months ago. Um, it's becoming a, a more prevalent issue, cyberspace. Um, I think this statement reflects that quite significantly. Um, and generally speaking, the changes uh, are significant. Um, I think it's fair to say NATO has been more vocal really about cyber matters than they have about anything else in the last few months. And that is the news. Uh, so thank you all very much for listening. Um, it's just me left now in the recording booth at this point in the uh, episode. So uh, thank you all very much for listening. Um, and all being well, uh, episode 10 should be on its way fairly soon. Um, in case you missed the announcement, we are obviously, as always, available on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, Google Podcasts, uh, Podcast Index. Um, and we are also now available uh, for those of you who are interested on Audible and Amazon Music. Um, so go check us out on there. If you enjoyed uh, listening to this week's episode, please do share the podcast. Um, we are at the moment reaching a roughly 45 countries across the world, which is just uh, an amazing um, thing for us. Uh, and we're really, really pleased and we'd really like to be able to reach more people. So if you enjoyed please share and we will catch you next time.